What in the world is passive sanctification? Is it, is it biblical? Well, today's episode will attempt to look into this movement and contrast it with classical Christian thought and on sanctification, and ultimately what the Bible has to say about it. I will also include some of my own experiences with this movement. I encourage you to stay with me. Welcome to WCKS, where we can't keep silent about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the channel. I appreciate you and your participation with me. I'm Michael Russell, and in today's episode, we, wanna, we will be discussing sanctification, specifically passive sanctification, something I'm personally aware of, but was reminded about it in a recent article I came across. This introduced me to a new phrase, though not sure how long it's been around, but it's called passive sanctification. As I read the article, my personal experience came to mind. I recall the movement being referred to as hyper-grace movement. One of the leading voices of this movement was a man named Tulian Chavidjian, and sorry if I butched his name, former pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. In an article I came across while I was researching this episode, it states, quote, hyper-grace teachers are not soft on sin, they're just extremely big on Jesus. And most followers are not enmeshed in sin. They simply, they're simply being liberated from judgmental churches that rely on human effort and neglect the sufficient work of Christ. Now, I pulled that quote from a website by Julie, Julie Roys. It's julieroys.com. It's in the description if you want to look at the article. And it's entitled, What is Hypergrace and Why is it Controversial? It goes on with the statement, quote, The idea of progressive sanctification, that believers, with the help of the Holy Spirit, go through a process that gradually separates them from the evil of the world to be more and more like Christ, is dismissed by hypergrace teachers as legalism. Instead, they believe that a holy life will be a byproduct of God's grace. And I end quote. Now, before I dive any further into this, I want to say very succinctly, I agree with the last statement. They believe the holy, that a holy life will be a byproduct of God's grace. I believe that's true. But their earlier statement that those that practice progressive sanctification are legalists, I do not agree with that. So, as I stated uh, earlier in my uh, opening, I was in a church that had a pastor that was involved in this hypergrace movement. <clears throat> Excuse me. And in, in and of itself, it seemed as though, you know, it wasn't really heresy or anything. I mean, the, the focus was, but look at what Christ did. But look at what Christ did on the cross. He, he took care of it all for us. So even though, you know, he would teach on, you know, sin and the imper imperatives of Scripture, it appeared that he always kind of focused the attention on, but, you know, look at what Christ did, kind of a thing. So I could see where over time, drinking this belief in and pushing the idea that our efforts are not even needed 
kind of a thing can really cause some problems. And remember the uh, article that I first came across this um, was an article that was titled 10 Dangers to Passive Sanctification. And I'll touch on that a little bit more as we go further here. But let's talk a, a little bit about progressive sanctification. What is it and all that? But before we go into that, let's just kind of define some terms. When we're talking about salvation, we could wrap it up into maybe a couple significant tenets of salvation, one being justification, one being sanctification, and one being glorification. So the process of salvation kind of encompasses all three. So let's kind of define the terms here when we're talking about justification, this was made possible by Christ's death on the cross. He paid the debt of sin that mankind, mankind owned, owed to God. God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. God's only son who became a man, God himself taking on flesh, to live the perfect sinful, uh, sinless life as an example to us, for the sole purpose of going to the cross and taking on the sin debt of mankind. Scripture says, he that knew no sin became sin for us. And then God poured out his wrath of judgment upon Jesus on the cross. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then his last words, it is finished. Praise the Lord. First John Chapter 2 tells us, the Apostle John writes, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, He, meaning Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is this word propitiation? Another big word. Wayne Grudem helps us understand it in his book, Bible Doctrine, and puts it this way. Paul speaks of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood through faith, Romans 3.25. Paul then explains why God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, that is, a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's wrath into favor. And I'll end the quote there. So, Christ made it possible for God the Father to apply the righteousness of Christ to those who believe. That is justification. Justification is a legal term, like in a court of law. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So it isn't our own merit. We don't earn salvation. We aren't called righteous because of anything we've done. It is all by what Christ has done at the cross. He paid the debt so that we could live. Praise the Lord for that. Now, the second element 
of salvation that we talked about was sanctification. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Then, after all that, we move to the third element of salvation, which we call glorification. Now, glorification is the final state that the believer is looking forward to. That is, eternity with God on a new earth with a new heaven. Okay, When Christ returns, uh, whether we're alive and we're raptured or the dead, we're already dead and we are caught up to meet him, but with him is a new heaven and new earth. And we, as the church, will be united with Christ as our groom, we the bride, and we will be in a holy marriage for eternity with God. Just like Adam and Eve had a relationship with God where they walked in the garden together. That's what we're looking forward to. That is glorification. Now, these are more formal academic type definitions, but we have ample biblical references we need to point at in order to do what we ought to do in all things, and that is test all things to Scripture and hold fast to that which is true. So the topic before us is this idea of passive sanctification. The article that triggered me, as I mentioned a bit ago, was 10 Dangers of Passive Sanctification, written by David Murray. Uh, Murray. Uh, that was out of, ultimately, I saw it in the Aquila Report, which is a conservative uh, Christian publication, but it actually was posted, the full article was posted on headhearthand.org. Again, all these links are in the description. So I will quote a little bit from some of the research that I did, but it was really that article that triggered me to look into this phrase. And the common phrase of sanctification, which is pass, uh, progressive sanctification, is understood that it is the, um, you know, when we become born again, which is a work of God, where the Spirit of God quickens our hearts when we hear the gospel and we recognize we're sinners, in need of, of this Savior, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to confess our sin and call upon the Lord to be saved. And the Holy Spirit indwells us, possesses us, comes into our hearts supernaturally and saves us, brings new life, gives us life. Our, our souls, our spirit are made alive, and we're new creatures, new creations, okay? And the Spirit sets us apart sanctifies us. Okay, We're no longer of the world. We are of God. We're set apart. Yet, that's the beginning of what is called progressive sanctification. We progress from that moment to our death in becoming holy, being sanctified, becoming holy, becoming like Christ. And ultimately, that is the Holy Spirit's job. He's the teacher. He'll remind us of all the truth. He'll speak for us in times of need. He will have compassion on us. He will comfort us. He will move us. He will gift us 
to do the good works that God has planned for us to do from the foundations of the world. So we know that God is driving all of this, and we'll see as I as I contrast that with some passages, but we know that God is part of this, but what about our role? Or do we even have a role? So with regard to passive sanctification, Pastor John Sampson, in an article simply called Passive Sanctification, helps us understand what this movement uh, espouses. So I pick up in, in the article, it says, the basic idea is that personal holiness is achieved without any personal activity, without any physical effort. Rather, holiness is received the more we are enabled to yield or to give up or to believe. The older form of this error has been summed up in the phrase, let go and let God. We are passive and God is active. The more passive we become, the more active God becomes. The less we try to succeed, the more God will succeed in us. The newest form of this error can be summed up in the phrase, believe in your justification and you will be sanctified. The idea is that the more you believe in your justification, the more holy you will become. As faith receives and embraces justification, spiritual growth will happen. Faith simply receives, and this automatically produces godliness. There is no effort or activity on our part, apart from the effort of believing and receiving what Christ has already accomplished. Sanctification happens by believing in our justification. And I'll end the quote there. Now, in a book that Kevin DeYoung wrote, he's a Presbyterian pastor, um, in, in um, kind of as a rebuttal to this hyper-grace movement, which is now kind of being summed up as passive sanctification, in his book called The Whole in Our Holiness, he writes, in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, J.I. Packer claims that present-day believers find holiness passé. He cites three pieces of evidence. Number one, we do not hear about holiness in preaching and books. Number two, we do not insist upon holiness in our leaders. And number three, we do not touch upon the need for personal holiness in our evangelism and DeYoung quips, these observations sound right to me. Herein lies the issue. Progressive or passive, which is right? We need to prayerfully read Scripture in its context and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what is the truth. So let me start with a passage that really has nothing to do with sanctification, but it does weigh into the conversation that we're about to have. It's a very powerful passage from Joshua, the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, and we're going to pick it up at the near the end in, in Joshua 24, and this is at the end of Joshua's life. Joshua, for those that may not know, actually was raised up after Moses died. So Joshua was one of Moses's um, 
proteges. And when Moses kind of disobeyed God and struck the rock at the end when they needed water, and God said, just hold your staff out, and Moses struck the rock, and God says, you blew it. You will not, because of this sin, you will not enter the promised land. So they got up to the promised land, and then God called Moses up on the hill and took him. Okay, he died. And then Joshua took over, and Joshua led Israel into the promised land, starting with the walls of Jericho, the big city of Jericho. And Joshua was the one that led them through all of the the different nations and made war against them and took over the land. Okay? And we pick up in Joshua chapter 24 with that little summary. It says, Joshua assembled all the Israelite tribes at Shechem. He summoned Israel's elders, rulers, judges, and leaders, and they appeared before God. Joshua told all the people, Here is what the Lord God of Israel says. In the distant past, your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates River, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. They worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and brought him into the land of Canaan. I made his descendants numerous. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I assigned Mount Seir, while Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I struck Egypt down when I intervened in their land. Then I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you arrived at the sea. The Egyptians chased your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Your fathers cried out for help to the Lord. He made the area between you and the Egyptians dark and then drowned them in the sea. You witnessed with your own, very own eyes what I did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought with you, but I handed them over to you. You conquered their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, launched an attack against Israel. He summoned Balaam, son of Beor, to call down judgment on you. I refused to respond to Balaam. He kept prophesying good things about you, and I rescued you from his power. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, fought with you, but I handed them over to you. I sent terror ahead of you to drive out before you the two Amorite kings. I gave you the victory. It was not by your swords or bows. I gave you the land in which you had not worked hard. You took up residence in the cities you had not built, and you were eating the produce of vineyards and olive groves you did not plant." And I'll end it there. So why did I read that? Well, with this passage, it shows us that though many of these battles and so on actually took the life of many Israelites, they, they literally fought with swords and spears and arrows, and they 
shed blood and, and all that stuff, yet God clearly says, no, 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 no. You didn't win because of your arrows and bows and all. You won because I gave them to you. I sent fear into their hearts that helped you. And over and over we see that. And that principle, that idea, that truth is that God is the one doing ultimately the work. So on one level, when we talk about sanctification, clearly God's involved. Clearly. This is not something we take credit for. But the question at hand is, is there anything we actively should be doing in participation with sanctification? Now remember this Joshua passage as we get into it. I'm going to take us now to back to our topic, but looking at the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter here for context purposes, and that's the key here. Paul writes, what shall I say then? I, I'm sorry, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? <laughs> By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just 
as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when we were slaves to sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ the Lord. What a powerful section. It's laying the groundwork, and you see within here, though maybe a little subtle, this idea of us taking an active role in this to not do these things, not pursue this way of life. But we continue. If we drop down in Romans chapter 7, we just finished 6. If we drop into 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not want, I'm sorry, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, with the law, that it is good. So now, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul clearly breaks this down for us. There is now a battle going on in the hearts of believers. They have been made new creations by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God, the Spirit, indwells the believer. Yet, we are in this body of flesh, literally. We are in a sinful, corrupt body that will die. We live in a world that is corrupted with sin. So there is a battle going on. And the Spirit of God convicts us and and entreats us to move in a certain direction, um, uh, disciplines us, um, comforts us, corrects us, teaches us, gives us gifts to be used for the service of the body of Christ, and so on and so on and so on. Okay? And now we are aware of this war, this battle that's going on in our hearts by the Spirit. So Paul continues in the book of Philippians, and we're building the case. We're trying to get a good understanding in multiple passages of Scripture, not just one, of what it is related to sanctification, what role we play as human beings in this process. Or are we to simply sit back passively and do nothing? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute here. This is the same guy that wrote Romans, the Apostle Paul. And he said, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Yet here in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation. Well, how? If we don't have the ability, as he said in Romans, how do we do it? The Philippians passage tells us, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So supernaturally, as with the Joshua passage, supernaturally, God gave Israel the victory. Yet, Israel didn't just sit back at their house and do nothing. They were engaged in the battle. They moved forward. Yeah, God gave them the ability. God gave them the power, the strength. God provoked the enemy to run and all these other things. And in the same way, in our own personal battle, this same thing is happening. So there's not an inconsistency here. There is a harmony, but you need to understand, based on the passage, what's really being said. So in the Romans passage, Paul is dealing with himself on his own effort and everything. This is just not possible. I struggle all the time. And we'll, we'll figure this out as we go further. Let's look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, picking up in verse 18. We're going to read from there into verse 4, chapter 2. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, clearly the Spirit is active here. Therefore, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Again, we see God is doing the work, but our effort seems to be involved. Okay? These are active words, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Renounced. We have actively said we're not going to do that. Or we refuse to practice cunning, to do cunning things. Okay? These are active words, but always by the power and grace of God. If we move to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 26, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Hmm. 
For the desire of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we can even go deeper if we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Again, that word holiness is part of sanctification. We become holy. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made it his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Hmm, powerful. I press on Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, and I'm running through these simply due to time. All of these will be in the description so you can go back, prayerfully meditate over them and read them. I encourage you to do that. Hebrews 12, 4, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. Interesting, very powerful. Colossians chapter 3. We read earlier 18 through 4-2, but now we're going to read Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Hmm. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old selves with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I believe these passages are clear teaching that God empowers sanctification, but we have a duty and the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness with all of our heart in the strength and power of the Lord. I want to remind us our salvation is not of ourselves. Our sanctification is not only of ourselves, but we have a role to play in it. Understanding we cannot, just like our Joshua passage, don't tell me it was your swords and spears that did it. They had nothing to do with it. So we we do actively participate with the understanding, the only way we were even able to actively participate and actually overcome sin and evil in our lives is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. This is one of the last two that I'm going to read. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Christ appeared, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and the one who does not love his brother. What a passage! What a passage! practice of evil or righteousness, the practice of it. It is the active work of it. So there is an active part that we play. And let's finish up with maybe the, the most powerful passage, maybe, that Paul brings in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, picking up in verse 24. And Paul writes, do not do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not 
box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about sanctification, we absolutely must recognize it is a grace and work of God. However, the imperatives in Scripture, which are commands, are clear that we cannot just sit idly by and expect God to just pick us up like a puppet on a string and make us do things. Throughout the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New, even when God himself communicates with humans and we are brought into that conversation, there are commands that he gives. Get up and do these things. Get up and go out and do these things. We don't just sit back and just wait for him and watch the show and kind of watch what happens. So when it comes to sanctification, let us understand we have a responsibility to live a life that is honoring to God and to put away all the sin that entangles. We've been made able to do that by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. We are convicted. We are taught. We are forgiven when we repent because we've fallen into sin, and we are given the strength and enabled, empowered to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. I want to thank you for joining me on this particular episode. I look forward to having you back. Please share this with others that I, I trust it would be impacting and encouraging, though maybe convicting. I want to pray for you that the Lord will richly, richly bless you as you open your heart to his son. And I trust that as you dig into his word, which we should do all the time, daily, and pray daily that God would forgive us of our sin, that God would renew us, change us, sanctify us, and give us the strength to push against the enemy and the flesh that we would become holy. I trust he will do that. Until next time, be blessed. I appreciate you joining me today for this episode. Please follow the channel and share it with others. And join me for the next post. Until then, be blessed.